Okay. Um, maybe we'll start off. Do you, well, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Let's, uh, let's go this way. Go on, Ken. Thanks, yourself. Perry. Um, my name is Katla Humapai. I'm uh, the managing director and co-founder of Yoko Technologies. Uh, we're in mobile card acceptance, uh, chip and pin. Uh, we've been incubating for two years. Uh, we recently uh, got to market. Um, you know, what differentiates us is that uh, we're the first uh, player in the market to have a super merchanting license, which allows us to contract directly with our merchants. And through that, we've been able to sort of control and digitize the acquisition process of the merchants and really manage the customer experience throughout their whole life cycle, which is really helping us with the retention process too. I'm Bevan Duques, the founder and CEO of Y Group. Um, we built a platform about seven years ago. We launched the business in so 2008, and we originally were a B2C company launching a consumer app, and we pivoted the business to be a platform play. And so now what we allow is for the retailers to integrate into our platform, and we allow all the different mobile transaction apps that are launching in the market, whether it be payments, couponing, vouchering, uh, mobile money, loyalty, and they integrate into our platform. So the retailers can do a single integration to a platform layer and enable all the different transaction apps through a single integration. So that's what we do. So, um, Niels Bormann, CEO of FaceValue. Um, it's a company that is an operational entity, um, also acting as a third-party processor, enabling clients to better use our transactional and core banking technology to host issue transactions and also to process it for them. Great. Uh, I'm Perry Blatcher, by the way, everyone. I'm a venture partner with Amadeus Capital Partners, which is a, uh, a venture firm in the UK, and I'm a, I'm a long-time fintech entrepreneur. I've built businesses in asset management, remittances, payments, credit. What we're going to talk a bit about today, we're going to change tack slightly from the last panel, partly because we've got less people here, but also we've got some of the best entrepreneurial talent, really, from South Africa in sort of rapidly growing businesses. I want to talk a bit about... Um, platforms and how you guys drive usage and adoption of those platforms. And one of the themes I think that I know, is it Mark on the last panel touched a bit on that I'd like to start on is a bit about the banks and the retailers and the operators. So it's very easy for this sort of group to diss the banks and the operators and they're all dead and dying and we can all beat them and bypass them. You guys have actually done a very good job partnering with them in different ways. And so I'm interested to know, are they, I guess my question I'll start off with, with you, Cap, because you're sort of powered by one of the banks in a way. Are, are the banks here kind of your, your best friend or the necessary evil really on this continent? How do you, how do you think about the role of the, of the banks in all of this stuff you've built? Thanks, Perry. It's a very good question. Um, so, you know, I mentioned previously that we've been incubating for two years, um, and the first year was literally spent lobbying a bank uh, to share a license with us, right? So, just the four of us founders lobbying the bank, putting together a very clear case as to why, uh, you know, they should partner with us. And, you know, that was just the reality. Uh, we, we couldn't have gone to market uh, without a bank. Um, in this particular case with card acquiring in South Africa, there's only six banks uh, that have a license to, to do this. Uh, it's the big four. Uh, it's Capitec and a smaller bank called Mercantile. Um, you know, after some advice, uh, we uh, started to lobby the smaller bank, uh, making the case that, look, you know, we're going to develop some you know, interesting capability to reach, uh, target, um, and onboard uh, these smaller types of businesses in a far more efficient and an effective way. Um, and, you know, you can participate uh, in the market uh, through us. So it's really, you know, uh, a real partnership, um, trying to close a gap uh, that they would never otherwise be able to reach. And it took some time uh, to convince them on this. You know, they'd never really partnered with a startup before. 
Um, but in the end, you know, everything comes down to risk, uh, in particular for this bank, which is quite risk averse. And uh, you know, through one of our founders, Bradley, uh, who has a you know actuarial risk background, um, we were able to really demonstrate that we really understood what the risks and the pain points in the industry were, and how we we're going to address them quite effectively. And it's been quite nice uh, the journey with the bank as a partner, sort of from distrust startup to uh, you guys really show to, you know what you're doing to now us actually influencing them and how they're doing their internal risk and how they you know take on new customers. So that's been quite exciting, sort of t turning that relationship around, and it's become quite power now. Yeah, and for you, Bevan, with the retailers, really, how have you found that experience? Or what have you found has worked engaging them? Because you've done an unbelievable job getting them all in one place, which in itself is... So, sure, it's been a journey. Obviously, like I mentioned earlier, we've been around for almost seven years. And I think when you start being a platform play, because you're not launching a product, uh, it's very hard to get retailers to integrate into your platform because they can't you know, see the value immediately. And, uh, and like I say, we're not launching an app. So I think for us, it was just working with the retailer on a strategy that made sense for them to plug the platform in. Um, and then based, you know, the, the core thing about a platform is it being sort of once you get to a certain level, it hits a tipping point. So we got ShopRite checkers and pick and pay, so we integrated all the tools on both of those groups. Uh, we're now in 50,000 lanes across the country, and I think with that, we've seen that sort of momentum building. But the key thing is just, and this is about you know, customer acquisition, and in this case, retail acquisition, we can talk about how they get their customers too. But the key thing is just understanding what it is they want. And often businesses go in you know, trying to figure out what it is you want as a business. And it's quite a simple thing, but you, know, you actually got to go in there, forget about what you want, and really try and understand what they want. And for me, we had to sort of went in thinking we're going to launch mobile transacting at ShopRite, and, uh, as an example. And what we realized is what their key need was, was doing digital couponing, getting the brands to fund the campaigns, as an example. And so it was actually just going in and trying to understand what the client really wanted, and then us positioning around that. And I think that's a key thing you know, when you start. Forget about what you require in the beginning. Make sure we're answering a, a need in terms of whether it's a retailer or a bank. I mean, and we also dealt with MTN Mobile Money and Pick and Pay. And in that case, the requirement there was mobile money transfer with MTN, which is what we enabled. So it was just uh, sort of really honing in on what the specific opportunity is in that environment and, and really targeting their need. And once we did that, then that obviously unlocks a lot more value on, on the back of it. So, that's how we did it. Thanks. Um, and as far as using banks, I think you know the businesses I've built have been focusing on component business modeling. And as such, if you do the business of a bank and you want to partake in issuing accounts, taking deposits and the like, you, you have to actually acknowledge the role of the monetary structure and the, the function of a bank. So either you want to become a bank or you want to actually collaborate with a bank. Um, so. I think it was about eight years ago I did the first co-brand structure in South Africa with Bitvest Bank then. And um, that was an evolution in itself for corporate banking in South Africa to start issuing corporate accounts on their own brand but utilizing the bank's balance sheet. And in that, also not only for issuing but also for transacting, as Katlejo said, you know, there are only six um, acquirer licenses, I think seven soon to be, in South Africa. And you either want to be one of them or you want to collaborate with them. So it's, it's more, it's a business decision. And you know, if you want to play in the monetary regulated space, um, that's a consciousness that you need to adopt. Now you can talk a little bit about what the MNOs are doing um, and you know, where they determined or, or rather were frustrated with um, core banking being slow to adopt and the legacy behind that, where they're saying we do actually 
service a, a customer relationship, why must it be so expensive? But they don't have the same regulatory onus. And uh, as a result, what's happened actually between those two distinctions, um, as was alluded to in the previous uh, panel discussion, there's, there's a big regulatory mismatch uh, between where the liquidity sits and the regulatory oversight as to what happens with the M1 money supply. So we are um, of the opinion that we support monetary structure and you have to collaborate with banks and, um, and as such, it's actually the, the uh, use of technology today has made it so competitive that in trying to line up an issuing bank, if the one that you're talking to is, is not in interested, you can go to the next one and they might be, or then go to a different market. And, and did you find, how have you all found, I mean, clearly the most important part of your, all of your <coughs> businesses in a way is once you've uh, sort of acquired the customer, you've got to drive usage through the, through the channel. I mean, you're only as successful as your deployments. I guess the question for you, Ben, is like how, how do you influence and drive those deployments and how can people work through a third party like a bank or a M&O effectively? Yeah, sure. So I think, well, there's a, there's a few things. Um, just going, going back to that original question as well, um, you know, being a platform player, what's really important for us is that it's not about how we can get end users, but rather partnering with markets that are already trying to get end users. So as a platform, you know, I use the example of what Apple did with the iOS platform. So they put a phone into millions of people's hands and they allowed the world to build apps onto this platform. And through that, they're growing effectively you know, the value of, of the iOS platform of Apple. And so they're literally growing on the back of the world's creativity. And that's the power of a platform. So that's one of the, the key things you asked just now. You know, how are we doing that as Y Group? And I think that's important. We're just putting the platform layer down on retail and allowing the world to come up with different applications that just plug into us. So, so that's the first thing. And then how do we stimulate that, which is the second question. Um, you know, how, how do we make sure these guys are launching good applications? And, and I think really you know, a, a good platform works with the different companies on their strategies and advises them. Because we do it day in, day out for the last seven years, you know, I'll sit with the M10 mobile monies and advise them on what that USSD string should be. I'll sit with the checkers, easy coupons, and work with them on their checkers app, or with whether it be one of the big four banks working on their mobile banking application, or whether it be the gifting app that plugs into us and working with them on that. And, and the key thing there is just taking some of the nuggets of learnings that we have because we're dealing with so many different verticals uh, and so many different people launching consumer applications, we work with them on what are the nuggets that they need to, that they need to know. And, uh, and those nuggets are things like, which I'm sure we'll touch on later, but things like keeping the app as simple as possible. What is the value for your customer? Um, you know, a lot of guys, as I said earlier, businesses launch, a, launch an app because they think it's cool and they think they need it and, and it's what they want to get out of it. And it's amazing how many corporates launch an app because of what they want. And, and you sit down and you, you go to them and say, okay, cool, whether it be a Woolworths or a ShopRite or a pick and pay or a bank, and you say, well, what is your customer actually wanting? And they go, well, well you know, they want to pay, but what's more important is I want the data or I want this. I said, well, your app's going to fail and then you're not getting any data from it. So it's really important to understand why would a customer actually download this thing. And then the second most important question after that is just simplify it as far as possible. I mean, we all know about the 80-20 rule, but I like saying it needs to be 95 and 5. Because reality is in the app world, people just don't want options. It, it's literally click, download, onboard, boom, I must use it. And if it's any, you know, anything past that, you lose them. And, and I think it's really, really important that you know, all, the, all the applications that are launching through us, we're helping them just streamline that and streamline that until it's the lowest common denominator in terms of that's 
what the customer wants to do. You know, WeChat, chat, Google, search. You know, if you look at even Facebook, they tried to launch Messenger to compete with all the rest of them, but none of us go into Facebook and then use Messenger to chat to each other. You know, and that's the point. We want, we want a specific uh, app for a specific cause, and I think simplifying it is, is really key in this market. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, from a platform perspective, uh, not looking at it purely from a technology uh, aspect, and also just being open uh, from the onset. So what I mean by this is, you know, being open uh, from the onset, you know, we've launched uh, recently, we have an API, we went to market with an API, which is, you know, quite, quite unusual, right, from, from the onset. And what that's done is, you know, we've managed to partner with a tablet-based uh, POS system called ICANN2. And, uh, you know, now they're taking our product uh, to a new place that we couldn't have done otherwise uh, at this stage of the business. And, you know, this is going to happen and we're going to see this drive out. And this is also allowing us to get into hospitality, which we never could have gotten from the onset. So it's really exciting. And we're going to see uh, a couple of these things happen, uh, you know, across the board. But not just in terms of technology, but also just in terms of partnerships, um, you know, setting up uh, these indirect uh, sales agreements uh, with partners who are already sort of dealing with uh, these uh, small merchants um, and allowing them to participate uh, in, in, in the selling of our product and in a very easy and simple way and ensuring that from a platform, um, you know, once these guys bring in these merchants to, to our landing page, it's a nice, seamless, easy uh, onboarding process that they can, you know, really get going with us. Yeah, and for you, it must be a lot about driving, and for all MPOS providers, about driving, once you've got distribution, about driving volume of payments. How are you able to influence the payments that go through that? Obviously, non-fraudulent payments, but yes. how are you able to drive that volume of payments through the merchants, and does it need feet on the ground? Can you go in directly? Uh, so in terms of payments, so them getting the product or them using the product? Using the product. Using the product. It's the product itself, right? Um, I think this cannot be underestimated. Uh, we're really, really obsessed on how we built our product. And, um, you know, just watching the merchants use it, uh, the fact that it just works, um, has been phenomenal. And as another sort of anecdote, we um, included uh, the ability to um, accept cash payments on our product. So it becomes a unified product, it's not just a card. And what we're seeing now between the ability to accept cash and card payments and to track them um, with our web portal, uh, allowing the, the merchants to see analytics on their business for the first time, all inclusive, uh, you know, with no additional cost, all of a sudden it's becoming a central point uh, for the merchant and you know, you're starting to see the card transactions rise and rise and rise and the cash transaction in conjunction. And, and Niels, you ran a couple of big loyalty schemes originally. What did you find found worked with the partners who were sort of up and running? I mean, obviously, on the one hand, you've got to get them on, but you were running the back end, if I'm not mistaken, of the, some of the big loyalty programs. What could one do to, like, what worked and didn't work so well with those? Well, I think what, what Bevan had said earlier is that what does the customer want out of it? So loyalty and reward is not about what the corporate, you know, wants. So beyond that, I think it's uh, bringing transactability or liquidity to the point of using the tokenized reward. Uh, not being pushed to an online store to buy a toaster. You know, it's about upgrades, discounts, and promotions, and then creating business rules to actually channel and analyze what the reward scheme can afford. 
um, you know, goes a long way with what is customer acquisition costing you and can you afford it in the business model? What must the commercial relationship look like? So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, loyalty and rewards is an expense. Um, and in, in many um, of the hands of the consumer, I think because I'm getting a reward back, I was actually cheated somewhere else. Why am I getting this? Um, so unless it's a true reward for loyalty, to say that we're actually giving something back, that must be transparent. But the, the challenge that I see at the moment with big reward schemes in South Africa, particularly from the banks, is that it's set up in such a way that you get actually so much back for simple everyday transactions like filling up your car with fuel that you question um, if you go down to the fuel traders market, the margin that they're giving you back isn't there. So where is it actually being made? So they're actually overcharging somewhere else. Um, so the, you know, what you try to do is um, use rewards for um, customer retention and actually further economic participation. Do you find, Bevan, now down here in South Africa, and you've worked with a lot of these partners, that they think about, that the third parties are thinking about it as it's either acquisition marketing, retention marketing, you know, that are they, how sophisticated are they with kind of driving and monitoring and managing these programs, or is it like we need a loyalty program, it's in the marketing department, let's put it out, no one uses it. Yeah, you yeah. guys have got to do the work on the streets to get them to do it again. Yeah, sure. Uh, I really don't think we're very sophisticated, if I'm honest. Uh, I think we, we want to be. Uh, we've seen some programs, you know, if you look at Pick and Pay with Smart Shopper, uh, where they're starting to analyze the data that's coming through that, and obviously millions of line item data and SKU data that comes through that. Um, but I, I think the reality is there's a lot of guys with big data that have no idea how to use big data. And I think that's the reality of it. I think we all like the idea of it, but the, the use of it isn't being that smart. Uh, so I think that's the, you know, we, we certainly on UpCurve and, and guys are getting some very smart, you know, actuarial scientists around a table and building some pretty neat programs to, to churn out, you know, trillions of lines of data and actually churn out something that's useful. So I think that's starting to happen. But in terms of, um, you know, loyalty and, and guys launching their programs, I think that a lot of the case it is just people saying we want loyalty so let's, let's just get something out there and, and we having to work with them being a product provider and being a tech provider, we actually having to work through those questions with them and saying to them what is your reasoning for doing this, uh, what, what, are you, what is your outcome, what are your objectives of doing this, what is the value for the customer, how are you going to fund this, a lot of people as you said actually forget about the fact that we have to fund loyalty programs and, and the reality of a loyalty program just specifically on loyalty is just a straight off your bottom line. So I think um, there's two key themes that we're starting to see happening, at least in our space. Um, you know, the first theme is the fact that the funding of these programs is now moving toward brands, and, uh, and that's quite a big one. So if you look at the retail market, uh, as well as some of the banks are looking at that, instead of them saying, look, this, the funding of this program is gonna be you know, 1%, 2%, 5%, 10% of my bottom line, Let's be clever about it and let's partner with a Boss Ice Tea or a Coca-Cola or a Unilever. And because the technologies these days can tell SKU data real time, you can actually earn points and earn rewards based on what's in your basket. And they can then on charge the brands based on, so it's almost effectively a coupon, but you're earning it as points. So I think that's been uh, you know, a major theme and a change in terms of what the banks and retailers are looking at loyalty, understanding that they can start getting uh, you know, the funding of these programs through other things. And then the second key theme that I think is going to change the space is convergence. And what I mean by that is, 
Um, if we look at the loyalty programs, people are often launching programs on the back of something else. And, and so an example, as I mentioned earlier, guys are launching mobile payment applications or mobile banking or mobile money transfer. And so then they start looking at what are the other peripherals we can add to that. So are there deals or is it loyalty, is it couponing? And the key thing there is people are now realizing, you know, guys don't want to just go and pay with their phone just for the sake of paying with their phone. Uh, in some cases, it's a lot more convenient and a lot quicker, but there also has to be other value. And the, an important thing that digital is bringing, specifically mobile, is that no longer do I have to have 100 different cards or I have to, you know, print this slip or swipe that card or do this and then pay. Um, it's all converging into one. So the powerful thing that's happening is you can walk in, you know, tap your phone or scan your phone and it'll actually do the loyalty transaction first and the couponing transaction and then the payment transaction as well. So through a single tap or single scan, you're actually doing, doing all three transactions and that's what customers want. They want that whole process to be in the background. They don't have to worry about, do I have my Woolworths card or my Smart Shopper card? I actually just want to check out and it must take my money and or in my loyalty points and redeem any points I do have and it must just happen seamlessly. And I think that's the, the trend that at least us as product providers are, are sort of going towards and building out and well, have built a lot of it, um, but certainly where the market needs to go. And, and that's actually the other sort of big question, sort of theme I have for you guys as a panel really, which is on the one hand, if you see sort of Uday's talking slides, there's sort of fragmentation and everyone's doing small niches and pieces of all these different parts of financial services that were traditionally banks. And then at the same time, you're all transacting digital value. So do the payments guys become coupon guys? Do the coupon guys become financial service providers? Do the financial service providers need to go into payments? Like, how does it all play out? Do we end up with thousands of small players, a few big players that do everything vertically integrated? Or is it just it's a continued sort of yeah. combination well, of it? I think, I mean, it's a great, it leads on to that point earlier, and it's exactly it, where, you know, everyone's now trying to get into the game. And, and, and really, the, the core behind all of it is wanting to own the consumer. So the banks want to own the consumer, the retailers want to own the consumer, the brands want to own the consumer, the chat applications want to own the consumer. And so all of these things eventually, and that's why I say the important thing is the, the major theme is convergence. So what I, what I believe is going to start happening is you'll walk in with an F&B card or an app and you'll transact, but you'll actually be earning points for the smart shopper automatically and seamlessly. And it needs to happen in the background. And I think we're going to start seeing cross-pollination you know, sort of, of programs because the retailers don't want to give away their customers to, to banks and the banks don't want to give their customers to the retailers. So we're going to start seeing you know, interesting kind of links between programs. So we already started seeing you know, eBucks working with uh, ShopRite as an example, but then we're going to start seeing ShopRite's program sort of integrated back into, into their program. So I think we're going to start seeing that um, and that's going to be a, an important shift. But the most important thing is, again, keeping customer in mind. You know, it is going to get incredibly messy when you have 500 programs out there. You've got your grocery program, your, your coffee program, your bank program, your, you know, and it's, it's just a nightmare. So I, I believe the real winners are going to be the ones that can make these things converge without you as a customer having to do anything different. And that's the important thing. You must still get the value, but it mustn't be five extra steps. It actually should be one less step. And I think that's going to be a big trend. If I can add on to that, I think, Bevan, what you're implying with convergence and leading into platform, you know, ultimately leads into a requirement for interoperability and settlement. And now you're back into the banks. Mm. So the platforms are the ones that connect these sentinels of programs. And even the MNOs are pursuing uh, closed loop schemes. And they are waiting in the wings saying, one day a platform is going to connect us as a sentinel, as a use group, 
Um, so to turn this into um, the, the, the seamless thing that happens in the background is interoperability, and that feeds back into the national payment system. And then for the cross-border, that becomes a simple question of how does that bank that you collaborate with um, actually register a BIN? Is that BIN in registered internationally so you can route the transaction? Make sense? Absolutely. I think just also to add to that, um, what our respective platforms are doing, in my opinion, is that we're sort of taking the cloud to the, to the channel. Um, and in effect, we're collecting data on our merchants and their respective customers. And I think through that, um, all these uh, you know, sort of loyalty programs can start plugging in into something very seamless, right? And so I, I guess in that world, it must be quite hard for all of you to, I mean, Bevan's right, sort of it's all about the customer, but then you've all got this sort of multiple customers because you've got to service the small business and the customer at the end and the bank behind you and all of these things. How in a small, well, I guess there's probably got some other small businesses here, how do you navigate who the customer end is at the end of the day that you're trying to trade off servicing for? I mean, it must be a challenging one for you in a way, because you know at the end of the day you've got to drive transaction volume, but uh, you know, your customer is presumably that provide. How do you all think about the customer, I guess, and who your customer is as a platform? Sure. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, you're right, and I think as we get bigger, I mean, I, I think we probably, I, I won't say we're a startup anymore, I think we're now, what, 70 people in the business, and we've processed 3 billion rand on the, through, through our platform, so it's, it's growing, but, um, you know, it, it is a challenge, because we're B2B, our client will be the businesses, the shop rights, pick and plays, KFCs, famous brands, you know, banks, but their clients are, we have to keep in mind, and that's the biggest lesson we've learned, so I think the way we do that, Perry, is we, the products and the technology we build guides the people that are using the product, if that, if that makes sense. So, you know, we, you know, an example, again, going back to Apple, because we're all just familiar with that platform. You know, they build a platform, or, or Android, they build a platform that gives you the tools to build apps. And, but the tools they give you help you build the apps as quickly and as seamlessly as possible so that you can give the most value to your customers. So, you know, for us, we will build tools like couponing and vouchering and loyalty logic into our platform. But we guide that product so that when an app, you know, plugs into that, we actually advising them through those APIs how that application should work. And then by default, we are, you know, pretty much defining the way that they are going to be doing couponing or vouchering or loyalty in an application. Whether it be Woolworths integrating into it or KFC integrating into it, we're kind of defining the best practice of how to do a consumer loyalty or consumer product or, or transacting or banking. And I think the way we do that, as I said, is through those APIs, building the product, and then through those APIs, sort of almost advising the apps, uh, plugging into us how best to do it. And that's the, the only way we can do it, in, in a way, other than just consulting, which is not, not sustainable, because obviously you want it to grow without you actually even being there. So that's... Yeah, to add on to that, I think it, it depends on your perspective. What is your core product offering, and what is a value-added service? And so, in terms of who owns the loyalty and collects this big data, either you're the account issuer, in the case of a bank or a corporate card scheme, in which case you um, have the onus of maintaining a certain infrastructure to maintain that relationship and regulatory oversight and whatnot, um, or somebody is actually piggybacking on your infrastructure as in the OTT product, and they're actually collecting the data without having to pay for the infrastructure, and in which case you actually lead back to a sense of a collaboration um, and, and this is really where um, you know, 
concepts like omni-commerce is going, we, we like to say that the river flows both ways. If you can have product providers that can coexist and share the same customer and think of themselves more of a pipeline than who is the issuer and the owner of the account. Mm. Um, as in the case with, with Apple, um, Apple has 400 million users around the world, but they don't issue a bank account. They've issued an iTunes account. Mm. Um, and you link your bank account to it. So when Apple, when you transact with iTunes, the underlying card issuer is participating. He's making a transaction fee. The card association is making a transaction fee. But ultimately, it's about the convenience and the development. So if the use case is there for the consumer, he's going to use it, and he's going to love getting the participation of the rewards and consume and consume more of it without really caring who the issuer of the underlying account was. Yeah. Uh, Perry, it's a very good question you asked. Um, you know, our primary customer is the business owner, the merchant. Um, and for the longest time, we were designing the product uh, for them. Um, and we're really happy uh, with you know, what we came up with. But a few weeks prior to our launch, it occurred to us that actually what we needed to be designing for was for the interaction between that merchant and the customer. And a slight nuance uh, got us to change a few things on our application in terms of what happens when you hand it over, freezing the screen, all these types of things. And this really saved us because you know, in the end, uh, you know, it could have led to a very poor experience, right? Because we didn't think about the end customer. So, yeah. Well, I guess um, my last question, maybe before we open up, is it actually relates to the same thing, which is I hear about sort of ownership of the customer, and you're totally right, that's what everyone wants. And at the same time, I'm a customer, and I don't feel very owned, if you know what I mean. What, is it, what does it mean? Like, who owns the customer? What do they own? Like, what is it they're really trying to control because in a sense, what's happening is the customers are being empowered increasingly and nobody's in control of, you know, in theory. So how do, you, how do you work with your partners in that, in trying to educate them on what it is they're actually ultimately trying to own? Is it just a channel? Is it the data? Is it the transaction? What, what are they trying to own? So in our world, and I think... Most of, the, most of the world that we've all been exploring uh, of late, and I think guys like Google, Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, all of them, you know, the world is really about an engagement layer with the customer, and they want to own that. Uh, they want to own that relationship with you, um, and then they want to own the data from that. And in, in our eyes, and in the eyes of a lot of the clients that we're dealing with, there's two major reasons why they want to do that. So the, the one reason is why they want to own the engagement layer is they can then obviously drive your behavior based on what you do. So whether you like it or not, you don't feel owned by Facebook or Google, but when you go into Facebook and they, you know, there's, there's an app sharing that says, you know, download Uber, you click on it and you download it. Um, and whether you like it or not, Facebook actually drove you there. And Uber's paying Facebook to get you to download Uber. And you know, all, these, all these apps are paying Facebook to get you to download the application or to go like their page or to go do something. So you first go into Facebook and then they drive you somewhere else. And that, that link is incredibly powerful. Now, if Apple owns that link to you and not the bank, well then guess who's going to give you the loan when they want to start doing loans? Apple or Apple's partner. So when you're in you know, an iPhone and they say, hey, do you want a fast little loan? Is it going to be Wonga or a bank or an Apple? You know, and, and I think that's why guys are starting to understand they don't want to, they don't want to lose their customer. We're dealing with big retailers like a ShopRite. They've got 20 million odd customers going through their stores. 
they feel in some way, shape, or form that they can offer you money markets, they can offer you financial services, that you can buy your computer ticket there, you can buy the products that they're putting on the shelf. So they don't own you, but you've selected them as a, as a potential partner in a way, and they're guiding you through a shopping experience and making you buy you know, all sorts of different things because you're there. Now, if you convert that and you start, you know, for example, let's say you launch a grocery shopping application, which let's say take a lot launches, but then take a lot just starts, you know, instead of selling grocery products which you're going to pick up at ShopRite, they didn't start selling you products which then delivers to your home and then they cut out ShopRite and, and they finished. So owning the engagement layer with a customer, and it doesn't matter what vertical you're in, is absolutely key because you will sell more products, you'll direct the guys to your business, even if in the beginning you're not making money. If you own that channel, it's incredibly powerful. So that's, that's massive. And then the second reason, which is the data reason, is you know, starting to understand what, what customers want, why they want it, and then you can better target them. So if you know them better, you, you know, you're more likely to up upsell, cross-sell, give them more solutions, more products, uh, because you know that you know, I'm a male, and I'm 31, and I shop for these products, and therefore I'm going to be interested in this based on algorithms and analytics. And, uh, and I think that's incredibly powerful. I mean, again, just using the Facebook thing, it's so powerful now being able to launch an app and say I want to target males uh, or females or whoever it might be in Cape Town that like sport and boom, you know, app arrives in your Facebook newsfeed. And, uh, and, and those are the incredibly powerful things that are happening because of the relationship on the channel and the data that's coming from that. I think absolutely valid what you're saying, Bevan, but maybe just more to the context of Africa, moving away from the touch points in the digital world. Um, ownership of the client or the customer is only as valid as the touch points. Mm. And so whether, if you need to get to the customer through an M&O kiosk or the reseller of, a, of a, a recharge card for electricity or prepaid airtime or micro-insurance, you need to be able to get to the customer. And it's not only getting to the customer, it's getting to transact with the customer. And, and the, you know, this is the emergence of uh, mobile wallets and, and the like to be able to reach out to this database um, and the biggest databases are MNOs in Africa, apart from the, the uh, social media. So validated um, KYC customer base is MNO. Communicating with them is the easy part because they have a device in their hand with a SIM card. Getting them to transact with you is the hard part because if he has to use their time to transact, it's incredibly expensive. Mm. So, in as far as OTT operators now piggybacking on the infrastructure of the MNOs, who owns the customer? It's actually irrelevant. It's about you know, the touch points. So if you bring convenience, talk about applications down onto the mobile device, if you're an OTT operator like WhatsApp, WhatsApp owns the customer in as far as um, chat, but they didn't pay for that customer acquisition. It was actually free. Um, the person who created the initial relationship that enabled that SIM card is pay, has paid for the relationship. Yeah, I think the key thing is, uh, I mean, obviously from our perspective, we have a legal, legal relationship with the merchant, right? So that naturally creates some sort of bond. Um, but in the end, uh, as long as you're delivering services uh, over this platform that's quite flexible, uh, that are relevant, um, you naturally uh, drive uh, the engagement, right? And things can s sort of start slipping into that quite naturally. 
so yeah, I think the key thing is really just about being relevant um, and ensuring that you know even just beyond the legal relationship, um, things are happening uh, that make sense for the merchant. Makes a lot of sense. Should we, should we open up? Has anybody got any questions or comments? Anything they want to ask these guys about? Hi, I'm uh, Eugene here from Trade Route. One of the questions I have is uh, regarding loyalty and the rewards and all of these microcosms of uh, liquidity that we all hold in our different accounts and uh, relationships. Do you see a convergence happening with the central account governing all those micro wallets? So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, I don't know if it's a, it won't be a central account, uh, but there will be convergence between, for example, an app that I'm using to transact with and all of these different accounts. So the way, the way I see it, and, and this is just one of the ways, it's not the only way, but certainly the one way, as, as I kind of touched on earlier, is it, is it is off the back of a transaction. So if I'm, you know, if I bank with FNB and I use the FNB banking app, what I believe is going to start happening is that application will start through an API tapping into all of these different stores of value or loyalty programs. So just to you know, keep it very simple, what I would see happening is when I walk into a pick and pay and I scan my phone or even I swipe my card, that transaction will trigger the smart shopper transaction as well as the payment transaction. And then I walk into Vida and I scan my phone or swipe my card. Obviously we're mobile, so I'm just gonna say scan my phone. So you scan your phone. And, uh, and, and that'll talk to their loyalty program and it'll earn you stamps. And then it'll go, you know, so I think that that, I believe, will be a convergence between transactions and all the different pockets of loyalty and stamp cards, whether it's a you know, coffee shop around the corner or a shop right. And I think that convergence is fairly easy now in the cloud. Um, and in terms of storing all of that value, I also believe that that's going to start happening in the background. So it'll trigger, it'll notify you after the fact. Say, look, you've, you know, you've earned a stamp, for example, at Vida. And on the 10th stamp, you'll scan your phone and it'll just say, hey, you've just received your free coffee. Come back next time. So it'll almost just happen automatically and it'll notify you about what's happening. Uh, and, and you'll still just be using your transaction app. Uh, so that's kind of the way I see it. It's not the only way, but it's certainly one way that we're starting to see things happen. Well, I mean, the, the convergence between uh, different platforms and different reward schemes um, can either take the form of platforms that start exchanging these rewards for one another, like a kind of an exchange, which we've seen in Europe. I think there's an example of that here lately. I uh, don't know much about it. Uh, but if there's, an, if there's an, uh, a requirement and a profit to be made from a marketplace to trade your rewards, there's certainly a, a, a use case to say, make them interchangeable amongst the users and the corporate user schemes themselves. Any more questions? <laughs> Sorry, won't get rid of me that easy. Um, a comment came up in the earlier panel around anonymity and uh, being able to actually trade without being known. Um, and the thing around loyalty and rewards is, is that it tends to name you. And in the digital space, you know, w we try to keep our footprint quite low. Well, some of us do. Some of us like to be on the top of the mountain, but some of us like to be quite low. Is there a way, or have you thought of, or have the merchants and big e-tailers and retailers like Pick and Pay and ShopRite and Diskim, et cetera, thought about how do we engage with customers in a private manner and how do we engage meaningfully? Because to talk to, you know, Niels's point, he talks around 
you know, we don't want to have another toaster, we've already got one, and we certainly want to have a redemption on something we've just purchased. We want some different form of redemption, but we also might want to private. Um, is there a thought process around how do we keep these things private and just interacted one-to-one? Because -one? Uh, you know, a lot of the time I'm getting emails and SMSs from people I've never engaged with as a result of a partner that I'm engaging with who's just selling my database out somewhere else and they promised me they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, the, I mean, the two things there. So the first part of the question, which is, uh, you know, have they thought about it being private? Uh, they have thought about it, but no one really wants to make it private. And I think the, on the honest truth is because people feel more engaged when ShopRite greets you as, hello, Bevan, not, hi, random number, X, Y, Z, we don't know who you are. So I think that the, from a loyalty perspective, there's still a common th uh, thread which says people prefer to be known if I'm engaging. Now, the second part that you, you discussed around them just sharing your data with people. I mean, that's, that's why loyalty programs and that's why programs are falling and failing and why customers aren't adopting it. Um, you know, obviously there's the simplicity of adopting to a program, which is a key one, but also the fact that we don't trust it. You know, I now join up, sign up, and the next minute I'm getting spam messages from everybody. So I think there's been a huge clampdown on that across retailers, banks, you know, that, that, that uh, you know, I really do believe guys are now going to start respecting that. If you sign up for them, you're only going to hear from them. And the second thing that is really almost as critical, you're going to hear relevant things from them. And like I said earlier, we, we're, not, we're not doing it well uh, from, a, from an industry. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I get spam mail from all sorts of random places. Or if I get an email from Pick and Pay, it's telling me to pick up something for my kids, which I don't have. So you know, I think it is getting better, and I think that's, that's super important. And the way they do that is through that analytics. There's, there's a number of companies out there now that, are, that you can literally do a data dump of transactional data linked to line customers, and then you profile them, and then it turns out to say, okay, of your coupons that you're running to run or your specials that you're wanting to run, these three specials are relevant to Bevan because in the last six months he's bought these products. And that, those things are now available, so it's actually just it takes a retailer or a bank or someone to actually say, right, it is there, let me build it and let me do it properly so that when I am marketing to someone, it's relevant, it's not too much, it's opted in, you know, all of these those key things that we that we hear about and people just need to start doing it properly. I'll add that in, in, in places like Tanzania and Kenya, sometimes you have no choice, it's, it just happens. Um, because you're paying with M-Pesa and that's your phone number, maybe you paid a taxi, it happened to me, I paid a taxi driver, which is very convenient at the time, you know, but then the next morning I get a call from them saying I want a loan. Can I jump in? Because <laughs> they saw where I live. Uh, so some, sometimes, you know, in, in parts of Africa you may have no choice because of that inherent digital money uh, ecosystem. Have we, have we got any other questions? Or anyone, anyone else got a comment? Go ahead. Maybe we'll take it the last one. Yes. So it's kind of building on my previous question. People are going to think I have a tinfoil hat at home and I'm a conspiracy theorist. But um, I, I do believe that our whole perspective on identity and so on is quite naive, actually. Um, you know, it was a week or two ago that some executive at Uber threatened the press with exposing them with data that they were collecting about people, you know. So um, I believe that in, in a few years, people are going to start to wake up and realize that the sharing economy isn't free. You don't get free Gmail, free Facebook, free everything in exchange for your personal data. Um, that's not really free. And, and, and there's going to be some sort of a rebellion against that, probably more in developed economies than, than it will be in, in Africa um, initially. Um, but how do you see 
loyalty programs and marketing and so on uh, evolving with that? And, and I guess it ties into the previous question. You know, is it possible to still do that without your customer handing over their life story to you? Um, and, and, and how do you see that, that whole uh, space changing? I mean, there's a good expression that says if a product is free, you're the product. And um, I think what will happen in the digital world is that there are two things that you can't run away from if you want to participate in that world, and that's your mobile number and your email address. And eventually these things will consolidate into meaning one thing. Um, software will develop that protects you like a barrier around that personal information, such as your ID number and your social identity number, and you know, shouldn't give out this information. So it almost becomes a proxy of keeping that private and having a public face that you can actually engage with. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with you fully. I think there, there really is a kickback on, on, on a lot of people signing up for things and realizing that you know, Google or Facebook or whatever they are is getting a lot of your data. And, uh, and I think there's going to be a massive kickback from customers and, and trying to figure out how they can get you know, the same services without me giving away my data and who I am. So I think that's, it's going to start from consumers. I honestly don't believe our retailers are mature enough or our banks are mature enough to do anything about it at this stage. I, I, I just think they're too, uh, forgive me if there's any retailers in here, but a bit narrow-minded at this stage to, to do that. Um, it's technically possible. It's easy. I mean, you just download an app and not fill in your data <laughs> and get the services, you know, and you still get a unique reference to that person. So, so it's absolutely technically possible. I just don't believe our market is ready for it, and I think that we're going to get some catalysts of, of app companies, I believe it's going to come out of startup worlds that are going to launch applications around that, that they're going to say, hey guys, one of the benefits of this app is we don't get any of your data. So download this app, we're not going to ask for your email, we're not going to ask for your cell phone number, and we're going to give you services and solutions. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see, but I think there are going to be probably a huge amount of consumers out there saying, hey, I'm going to port to that. And then that will kick off, and typically our banks and retailers are forced to do something because of you know, the underdogs, and there's no reason to them, for them to be forced in that direction at this point. Thanks. I think also the f philosophy around loyalty needs to be challenged. Um, the way I see it at the moment is that it's being seen as like a means to retarget uh, existing customers. But uh, loyalty is rewarding people for using your service, right? So you fly on an airline, you get miles. It's as simple as that. And I think sort of in every aspect of it, wherever it's applied, it's got to be applied like that. Once you start getting into the retargeting game, then it becomes something else, you know, sort of advertising, uh, and that's where sort of the, the blur starts to come in. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you very much. Can I just get everyone to uh, thank the panelists very much for wrapping up?